Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. There are things that go bump in the night, and we are the ones who bump back. Somewhere in the cosmos, perhaps, intelligent life may be watching these lights of ours, aware of what they mean. Or do our lights wander a lifeless cosmos? I couldn't help at one point in my discussions with General Secretary Gorbachev. I couldn't help but say to him, just think how easy his task and mine might be in these meetings that we held. If suddenly there was a threat to this world from another planet outside in the universe, well, I don't suppose we could wait for some alien race to come down and threaten us. But I think that between us, we Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to another episode of Cryptique, where we bring you stories of ETs, the occult, demonology, and hidden history. We ask that you subscribe, rate, and review as it is truly a big help to us. Check out our other podcasts, Movie Hell if you like movies, and Exploring Evil if you like true crime. If you missed last week's episode on the succubus, it has a little carryover to this episode, so you might want to listen to that one first. Grab your cloak and hunker down with your favorite owl. What are we talking about tonight, Jay? We are talking about Merlin. Merlin, the famous wizard. I'm sure all you guys have heard of Merlin, but we're going to talk about kind of where the legend came from and some of the different stories. And then I think at the end of the podcast, we may wrap it up with some famous sorcerers throughout history. How does that sound? That sounds like a night. All right. (laughs) So Merlin is a possibly mythical figure prominently featured in the legend of King Arthur and is best known as a wizard. So when I think of Merlin, obviously there's the new TV series that has a a very young Merlin. But when I think of Merlin, I think basically of Gandalf, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how I picture him. Yeah, I think of Gandalf or maybe even like a Dumbledore, if you're into Harry Potter. Kind of an eccentric, wise professor. Yes, eccentric, definitely. That's a great description. So he was basically introduced by the 12th century British author Geoffrey of Monmouth. Is that what you found too? Yeah, yeah. I found that he was the first person to write about Merlin, born in Wales around 1100 AD, that would be. Obviously, we're doing a show on Merlin because he's a famous historical figure. Um, what do you think about the possibility that he was actually a real person, not an amalgamation of some of these other characters? I, I don't really know what to think anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, coming into it, I thought there was probably a good chance of there being a real person behind it. Mm hmm. And after the research I did and watching, like I told you, a couple hours worth of documentaries, I think there's, I feel like even more that there's a better chance that there's a real person. I just think it's probably, in some cases, misattributed deeds. 
Okay. Or maybe mistaken identity. Somebody thinking that this person that they've encountered, maybe that's Merlin or this person being Merlin. In one of the documentaries that I watched that I, I don't even remember the name of, I took notes, but I didn't write them down. Uh, but there, there was one of the historians that they were interviewing who was talking towards the end of it, you know, saying, you know, people talk about the Kings and all that. And then they say, like, well, there's this Merlin character. Was he real? And they were saying that it seems actually more likely that Merlin was real than that King Arthur was real. I see. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Where did Merlin, uh, where did he come from? Because he doesn't have a typical birth story. What can you tell us about that? What I found, I haven't taken a look at all of your notes, but I saw that a lot of what we have lines up mm -hmm. was that the first story written about Merlin from Jeffrey Monmouth comes from a story about a chieftain called Vortigan or Vortigan. I'm not exactly sure how you're supposed to pronounce it. I think it's Vortigan. Yeah. Okay. And that he, this person who is apparently a real figure in history uh, had brought in a group of Saxon mercenaries to help with some kind of aggression from some allied forces to the north of them, I think is how that was supposed to have gone. As this conflict continued and more and more of these Saxon mercenaries were hired, they started settling more of their own people on the land that they were brought in to defend. And eventually Vortigan lost control of them. So they just started attacking his people, the people that they were supposed to be going after. And Vortigan went into, not hiding exactly, but he kind of retreated to try to find a safe place. Mm -hmm. And he had court magicians. And the magicians, you know, the, you, you see this kind of stuff in a lot of mythology or even just, you know, fantasy type movies and shows where there's like a, something mystical going on. Mm -hmm. You know, you saw something like that in 300 where they go to see the these prophet people or, or whatever they're supposed to be. They They come to their conclusions and give advice based on some kind of mythical, mystical force. But these... Court magicians told him to build a fortress up in these mountains, that he would be safe there. And that every day they would try to build up these walls and at night they would collapse. And the magicians told him that the reason that it was happening was there was something wrong. It was, it was a bad omen. It was a warning about something and that to make it work, they needed to sprinkle the foundations with the blood of a child with no father or specifically a boy with no father. I'm with you so far. So it was said... It, it, again, some of these stories are a little bit hard to follow, especially if you're getting them from a few different sources and trying to like piece together what they have in common. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm trying to pronounce some of these names. I have some question marks and parentheses in my notes. <laughs> but in uh, a place called Comathon, they found Merlin, the child of the daughter of the king of a Welsh kingdom called Dithit. That's the best I can approximate how that's supposed to sound. And this daughter of this king, they don't refer to her as a, a princess, mm -hmm. but it, it says that she was living in a convent amongst nuns and was impregnated by an incubus. Mm -hmm. So Vortigan's people found him and, you know, decided this is the person they're looking for. This is a boy with no earthly father. But they found pretty quickly that he had some kind of abilities or powers and they said that when he was brought before Vortigan that he kind of pretty quickly told him you know your magicians are wrong here's what's going on with this place and told him that there were this is where they kind of lost me <laughs> Merlin 
supposedly told him that there was a body of water underground, right? An underground pool, which is not that unusual. Right. What's unusual is he said there were two dragons trapped down there in stone. Mm-hmm. And then when the water drains, the dragons fight. Did you find anything like that? That's exactly what I found, okay. actually, um, to a T. And so he saved himself. So I was just actually trying to get to the point of being a Cambion or Cambion. Mm-hmm. Cambion, yeah. Or at least that's how I think it's supposed to be pronounced. So, yeah, he was apparently a Cambion and had these abilities. He could predict the future. And what I saw said that when they were trying to resolve whatever was going on with these dragons trapped underground, that was when he started getting these prophetic visions. Yeah, it said that he was overcome by some sort of spirit or some force Mm -hmm. during this whole episode. And he made these predictions like... um, I think it's a name that you had in yours that we were trying to talk about how to pronounce, but the, the son of the last Roman ruler in Britain or the British Isles would return and take the kingdom and kill Vortigan and all this stuff. And apparently all that actually did happen. So basically that sort of timeline leads to Merlin being kind of a, um, like a consultant, or a court magician, but much more powerful mm-hmm. to a number of kings. Right. To Vortigan, to the Roman king that comes back, which Aurelius. These are these are hard to pronounce. We're trying to use the Mac text to speech and it's it's just making noises at us. Myrdin was born in the ancient town of Camarthen in South Wales. He was a bard and wrote several poems in the Black Book of Camarthen and the Red Book of Hergist. The kings that Murden served was. So when we're talking about Murden, are we talking about the Welsh myth? Yes. Okay. Because that was one that I found that's much earlier than uh, Jeffrey, like mm-hmm. much earlier than his time. That was a sixth century legend. Yeah. Um, the Battle of Afterid was fought in 573. Okay. Yeah. And Murden Wilt, which apparently um, means like of the wild from what I could find. Yes. Refers to him being kind of a wild man. Uh, and there are stories of, you know, members of the church encountering this hairy wild man mm-hmm. out, out in nature who claimed to be responsible for numerous deaths in a battle that had taken place near the forest where he was kind of hiding out. Yeah. So after Gwendolu was defeated and killed, that's when Murden went mad and fled into the Caledonian forest and lived among animals. Mm-hmm. And it's unclear to me exactly what his story was before that. Right. So the, the Murden myth is what, or the, the Murden story is what some sources think Merlin is most likely based on. Right. He, he had some kind of loyalty to Gwendolu. But pretty much everybody on his side was slaughtered in this battle. Mm -hmm. And his story really kind of starts after that. He goes into these woods. He kind of exiles himself. He doesn't want to see anybody. He's driven nuts by the battle, by all the carnage. Mm -hmm. And kind of slowly regains his senses over the years. But then has prophetic visions. Right. 
He predicted future victory for the Celtic peoples of Britain in a time when they would join together and drive the Angles and later the Normans back into the sea. And it says a single Latin translation from a lost Cornish language, Prophecy of Merlin, exists in the Vatican Library. Mm. Wonder if that's one you can go look at. I, I don't know. I've heard there are a lot of things you can get from the Vatican, but you have to know what you're looking for and ask for it specifically. Yeah. I don't know if that's true or just one of those things that sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> like you got to know what you really want. Yeah, I, I kind of like, like you the have to idea. have a search warrant. <laughs> yeah. I kind of like the idea of the Vatican being like this um, group that holds all this knowledge. There's a, I don't know if you ever watched Warehouse 13. No. It was a sci-fi channel show kind of towards the end when they're when they still had some decent stuff. But, you know, they were getting ready to start, I don't know, doing whatever they do now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was this it was a show about a group that kind of tried to control artifacts mm-hmm. like artifacts that either had some kind of magical power or, or technological power, things that were just like generally too dangerous to be out in society. Right. And there's an episode where two of the agents run into uh, members of the Vatican. And one of the priests or monks or whatever he's supposed to be is played by Brent Spiner. And he like addresses the agents by name. And they're like, what? Like, how do you know about us? How do you know about the warehouse? And he goes, we're the Vatican. Mm -hmm. We know an awful lot of things about, well, an awful lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) It's just such a good response. And it's like, yeah. That actually makes a lot of sense. Like an organization that's been around for a thousand years or more, mm-hmm. they probably would have some, you know, organizational knowledge. Some secrets. Yeah. And the Vatican having all this information is one of the things that people kind of use to support the idea that uh, Jeffrey made this stuff up. Mm. That he was, he worked within religion i forget exactly what he was mm-hmm. he was some kind of like teacher scribe scholar something like that and some of the documentaries that i was looking at said that he had access to basically the greatest wealth of information there was at that time because the church pretty much they were the ones who had the most control over written works mm-hmm. so they said he would have had a huge backlog of material to kind of draw inspiration from for his own characters. It must be nice. Almost like he had the internet before it was there. Yeah. Or the only one who has access to a library, which is literally what that was. But yeah, (laughs) yeah. He doesn't have to ask for the book specifically by name. He can go kind of look around. I bet. Lucky fella. All right. Well, St. Kentigern comes across Myrden as a naked, hairy madman in a deserted place. And apparently at this time, Myrden said that he was condemned to wander in the company of beasts because he had caused the deaths of all persons killed in battle on the plain between Liddell and Carwanach. Then he jumps up and runs back into the woods Mm -hmm. and... He reappears several times and on the last occasion asks St. Kentigern for the sacrament and prophesies his own triple death. Do you remember how he triple died? First, he was beaten with clubs. Yeah, he was beaten with clubs. He was drowned 
And as he was drowning, he was impaled on fisherman's spikes. That's what I found. Yep. That's a terrible way to die. That is a pretty bad way to die. <laughs> yeah. There's not a whole lot of him actually being around King Arthur. He became a literary figure uh, from Geoffrey of Monmouth, and he's the one that connected him with King Arthur. But we're talking about the actual Merdin, not Merlin. And there's no records of him serving a King Arthur, mm -hmm. right? Right. That doesn't mean he never knew him. Apparently, Mirrodin or Merlin is supposed to be a friend of Taliesin. And Taliesin accompanies Arthur into the Celtic underworld on a dangerous voyage. So they would have probably known about each other at least and may have met. But the next stuff that I have is on Ambrosius. Did you have anything else you wanted to talk about with Mirrodin? Not so much. I didn't do that much research on Mirrodin. I found that there was a body recovered from a bog somewhere in the UK in the 80s. Okay. That suffered a triple death as far as they were able to tell. It was preserved by the bog and it was thought to be basically almost 2,000 years old. Wow. They found that, well, from what they can tell, it was beaten with some kind of club. It was, it had, this person had their jugular cut. Mm -hmm. And then they think it was done with a, like a garrot wire, something like that, mm -hmm. which also likely broke his neck. They think the final thing was being thrown into the bog for like a symbolic drowning, even though he would have already been dead by that point. Mm hmm. So there's question of whether or not this is Merlin. And apparently this body is on display in the museum, like it's mm -hmm. the British Museum. As Merlin? I, I don't know if it's as Merlin, but they're saying this triple death thing is, you know, it could be. Yeah. And it might be one of those things where it's like, this may not be the guy, but here it is. Kind of like sometimes you'll find like, here's an artifact that's like this famous one. Yeah. It's like the closest we can get. I'm not sure if it's one of those things or if it's just here's a 2000 year old guy who's really well preserved. <laughs> they were able to tell that his hair was well kept. His nails were short and like cleaned and trimmed. He was in exceptional shape. You know, he, he was in there without his like with nothing on the top half of his body. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that he was well kept and possibly sacrificed for some reason. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, maybe a lot of people were killed that way back then. You know what I mean? Like that could be uh -huh. like, you know, our electric chair or whatever, you know, cause they were so gruesome back then. Yeah. So a triple death, I could see them, you know, passing that with no problem. So according to the Welsh historian Ninius, Merlin appeared as a young boy, but under the name Ambrosius in Latin with the British King we were talking about earlier, Vortigern. Oh, speaking of Merdin and Latin names, one last thing that I did find was that the origin of the name Merlin did likely come from Merdin. Mm -hmm. Not just because of that sort of similarity, but they were saying that pretty much everything that was written back then that was in circulation would have been written in Latin. Right. And if you kind of Latinize Merdin, it would be, you know, Merdiness or something like that. Mm -hmm. And they said that refers to excrement. Oh, wow. If you were to like directly translate it, murd, I don't know if it's murd or murden would mean basically like shit or the shitty one. 
something like that. And they were saying it was, it's something that if you read Latin back then would have been so funny and ridiculous that you wouldn't have been able to take it seriously. That's really interesting. Yeah. They were saying there's a decent chance that because of that weird translation, that's why it became Merlin or Merlinus Mm -hmm. in some accounts because it was less um, funny. Kind of like how, you know, I don't know if it's a true thing or not, but people said that uh, the Chevy Nova didn't sell well in Spanish speaking countries because it means no go. Oh, and no go is not a great name for a car. (laughs) That's very true. Yeah, I've actually heard that before. I couldn't remember what it meant, but yeah, that's pretty funny. No go. (laughs) Similarly, Yugos did terrible here, too. So, yeah. In a similar account with Vortigern, it was Geoffrey of Monmouth who had named this boy Merlinius Ambrosius. So in the History of the Kings of Britain in 1137, Geoffrey wrote that he was the son of a nun and grandson of the king of Demetia in southern Wales. And then as to his father, he was either a devil or an incubus. So, I Yeah, I found nothing that suggested anything other than Merlin having an incubus for a father. Yeah, I didn't either. It's kind of a strange point now that I'm thinking of it to not be contested anywhere. Yeah. I mean, there are obviously people who think that that's a myth, but they don't propose any alternative to it. That's a good point. You think that there would be an easy alternative to it and just say, no, he he was not the son of an incubus. He had a real yeah. dad. You know, the media back then was slanted, too, so. (laughs) Merlin had been identified to the Welsh fictional bard name Merdin of the late 6th century in the Welsh poem called Afalanau and several other poems preserved in the manuscript known as the Black Book of Carmathen in 1250. Like, from what I found, Merlin served with Vortigan, then with Arlenius, then with Uther and then Arthur and was around till Arthur died. And then it doesn't, they, they didn't really talk about who he was with after that. There was more talk of how he was kind of incompatible with Christianity at that point, because Christianity had kind of taken mm-hmm. over as the primary religion. And they were saying like, oh, well, if he might've existed at this point, which means, you know, he came around too late for King Arthur or whatever, but it's like, you didn't have a problem with him being like, 150 yeah. years old before that i don't i just don't understand yeah. the timeline of some of these well stories. you know i think that maybe back then they would say a king would live you know 100 years or you know something to kind of build them up and make them seem superhuman or you know at least better than the average guy mm-hmm. and then jeffrey wrote another book on merlin called merlin's madness and it was written in Latin, like you were saying, pretty much everything probably was. It's known as Vita Merlin or the Life of Merlin in 1150. In this one, mm-hmm. he was Merlin Caledonius. He had a sister and a wife, but no parents. And it's the only text that mentions Merlin having a wife. So how common of, I mean, this may seem like a silly question, but maybe Merlin was a fairly common name, you know, maybe not like William or something, but something more common than what we think. I don't know. Or maybe there were other names that were similar enough mm-hmm. to be confusing. Maybe people had written about Murden before this 
and that name had gotten around or mm-hmm. had been changed in some way. Uh, in my research, I found that there were names as late as the 17th century. There were names in literature that were being derived from Merlin. That makes sense. They were either being used as pen names or character names. Merlin had gained his power in the history of the Kings of Britain, fictional story history of uh, Britain written by Geoffrey of Monmouth sometime between 1135 and 1139. And apparently it was one of the most popular books of the Middle Ages. I heard it sold like 40 copies. I mean, you know, (laughs) you don't have to sell a lot of copies to be one of the most popular books. Let's be honest. If 3% of the population can even read. Yeah, in a time where like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't know. I mean, I guess it's better than being one of the worst sellers. But the story begins with the settlement of Britain by Brutus the Trojan the eponymous founder of Cornwall who exterminates the giants inhabiting Britain. So what do you think? Is there a chance there were actually giants there? I don't know. I would like to think that there might have been there. Haven't there been giant skeletons found other places in the the world? Yeah. So I think it's not, you know, impossible by any stretch that it could be real. Um, it was actually one of the things I know I'm showing my movie how kind of side here, but there, wow. What was the movie? The green Knight mm-hmm. that came out a while back, you know, it features not a ton of like really far out, you know, kind of outlandish extreme magic and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But it does show things that hint at just, there's a world out there that's bigger mm-hmm. than you and your kingdom you know, to the, to the main character of this movie. Mm-hmm. And one of those is giants. There's a point where the main character is up on top of this like hill, kind of a ledge. And he sees these giants walk by like massive, like the size of buildings and they're going by and they kind of look, if I remember right, they kind of looked almost like mannequins. Like they didn't really have a lot of texture or features to them, but they were just going by, they were going in the fog. He could kind of see them. They were, immense and then they they never were mentioned again they never showed up again it was just one of the things that he saw this movie Mm -hmm. had so much spectacle in it and i really like that idea Mm -hmm. you know that there was just stuff we don't understand you know so if there were giants that lived at some point why 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 wouldn't they have been there you know why why is it impossible that there was we're not talking about 300 foot tall godzilla giants you know we're talking what 10 13 feet something like that yeah like 10 feet tall something like that yeah, there could have been a pocket of them someplace, and maybe they really were there. I wouldn't rule it out. You get the idea. They're, they're two different stories, and are they about the same person? I mean, I, I guess they could be. What do you think? Do you think that it's these two guys, and that's pretty much it? Murden and uh, Ambrosia? I don't know. I, I think it's more likely that it was... Murden, that was the real person. Yeah, I agree. Based off the research that I found, there are just too many points where he crossed with real history. The battle that you talked Mm -hmm. about between uh, Gwendolyn and you know what? Whoever their adversary was, because I'm not going to try to pronounce it in what was it, 1573? Yes. You know, the story mentions 
both of the leaders, you know, their kingdoms, the date of the battle, there are real, you know, there are, there are walls and ruined fortresses and things like that in the area where they're supposed to be. There's real evidence of that person mm-hmm. having been there, you know, and having gone into yeah. the woods and the church has records of their having been this wild man who came out and appeared to the saint. Kentigern was praying in a forest and was approached by him or whatever. But yeah, there there's enough, it seems, enough real history that interacts with Merlin or the characters that he's derived from, the people that he's derived from. Mm-hmm. That yeah, like I was saying, one of the one of the historians that they were interviewing said it's it's probably more likely that there was a real Merlin than that there was a real Arthur. Right. And they were saying, you know, it's the whole idea of being a magician or a sorcerer or whatever is not unusual. There are always mystical mm-hmm. types of people. There are always people like that who are advisors to kings. You know, it's just one of these things that was a fact of the way it worked back then. So why wouldn't mm-hmm. he be one of these figures from the past? Uh, what I saw said that there were basically a couple of bards that were really famous at the time. Mm-hmm. And they think he is one of those. I didn't find names of them, but there were three primary ones. And one of them also made sort of predictions, acted as a prophet. Okay. And they think that is who he's really based off of, that this Murden story, you know, that this this was who he was before the battle. He was a bard and he was mm-hmm. a prophet and he consulted with his king. And then when this battle happened, you know, the guilt of having led them in the wrong way through his predictions or his, you mm-hmm. know, whatever advice he gave the king, that's what made him kind of lose it and go into the woods and just stay there for however long he stayed yeah. there. Feeling responsible for mm-hmm. all those deaths would be terrible burden yeah. to carry in the 15th century story of Lelokin and Kentigern, who we were just talking about, Merlin, I guess, is actually someone they call Lelokin. Yeah. In the book. Okay. And prophesies that he's about to die a triple death. Ask St. Kentigern for the sacrament and got it. So then he was beaten, drowned, and pierced by a stake. So we know that I wanted to look up a little bit on Kentigern because he's a historical figure, you know, that appears in these stories too. Mm-hmm. And apparently he basically at like he converted a bunch of people to Christianity. And I guess that's why they gave him sainthood because I couldn't find any miracles or anything like that. Yeah. Running it like a business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The whole Merlin story is pretty convoluted. I think our descriptions probably mm-hmm. ran pretty convoluted. Yeah, we apologize. But <laughs> Merlin is most famous, and it's from that, uh, you know, the stories of the kings and all that. Mm-hmm. I believe where it's where his relationship with Arthur came in, and it seems like maybe it was unintentional that Merlin and Arthur in this connection mm-hmm. became so popular, but it seems to stem from the idea that Merlin used his abilities to orchestrate his birth. Cause if I, if right. I'm understanding it right, you know, he was born from aristocracy, but it was not the pair that were married. What I was able to find was that Merlin had, uh, basically transfigured another man to appear to be the husband of a Royal, yes. a member of some Royal family. And she, yeah. 
it's yeah. dirty tricks. And she man. slept with him, not realizing that it wasn't her husband, that her husband was acting, I think, as a general, and he was off someplace with some troops. He was gone for a period of months, I believe. I, there's no explanation that I found of how he came back and was like, well, you're pregnant, what gives? <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. that Merlin orchestrated this knowing who Arthur was going to be, having foretold you know, of Arthur's birth, knowing who he was going to be the whole time, knowing at what point he was going to come to power. And and kind of, he kind of, I don't know, pulled a Sarah Connor and protected the future ruler of England. You know, he didn't give birth mm-hmm. to him, but he he orchestrated it and then watched over them, watched over him, made sure everything happened the way it was supposed to. So, and I, I didn't find any reference of him having done that with any other ruler. No. But Arthur was also supposed to be the one that was going to unite everybody. And I I did find something on the king that we were just talking about. He ended up putting his wife and his kid out to sea, and he thought they would die, but they didn't. Hmm. And then that person turned into King Arthur, the baby, obviously. Did you not find that one? No, that one I didn't find. But it is a really difficult story to follow because this was a story from, at best, 800 years ago, which is possibly a retelling of a story from... 500 years before that. Right. And yeah, names have been changed. I mean, there there are so many things that just get misunderstood or mistranslated, especially when you're dealing with handwritten manuscripts where there's only one of them or maybe just a handful of them over the years that get made and then they get yeah. distributed and torn up and brought back and reassembled and changed in all these different ways. Yeah. Kind of like the idea that Mary Magdalene in the Bible was not a uh, prostitute, but was actually a member of a royal family. Mm-hmm. Have you heard that idea that she was actually supposed to be a member of a royal family, but it was because like pages got stuck or something at some point when it was being translated? No, that's funny. That's terrible that, you know, she would get cast as that. I've never heard that story, though. That sounds like a good uh, show. <laughs> yeah. But it's something that I've heard before. I mean, a, a decent example is um, I, I saw something. Somebody explained where ye comes from, where it's like ye old pub mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, where it has the ye. <laughs> Somebody was telling me that that is not ye. That is the. And they were showing yeah, like, makes sense. here's the letter Y and here's this symbol that is a phoneme for the sound. Th. Like that's the sound it makes. Th. And so when you put the E at the end of it, it's supposed to be V. Hmm. And they're saying it's one of these these things that is misunderstood now because it was translated and the symbol has changed after being transcribed so many times. And it looks like a Y, so they write it like a Y. And it's really supposed to be something else. Huh. you know. And that's, that's not to say that something that simple can explain how things get lost. But I could see how Merdin could become Merlin if you lose that little loop in the D. Yeah. Or if something just gets written wrong once and then that time that was written wrong, that's the version they go back to to copy something or, you know, translate it into another language. And I think if you have enough of that going on over the course of 1400, 1500 years, it's going to get pretty hard to find who the real person was. Absolutely. Do you want to talk about some other sorcerers now? Sure. Sure. But first, let's get a word from our sponsor. Have you ever wondered what it's like to kill a man 
Hey, what's up, Crypt Keepers? Are you enjoying the show? If you haven't already, I suggest taking my true crime podcast, Exploring Evil, for a test drive. Exploring Evil focuses on lesser-known serial killers, occult murders, and murders with a paranormal twist, so it should be right up your alley. The Magdalena Soli episode features a prostitute who convinced a Mexican village she was a goddess. She presented with psychosis, religious delusions, delusions of grandeur, sexual perversions, sadism, incest, fetishism, vampirism, and pedophilia. You don't want to miss that one. In the Indian Blood Farm, we cover a case where a man had an outbuilding he was keeping the downtrodden. He kept them weak by continuously draining blood to sell to the local hospitals who were running on short supply. But one man escaped and told the world what was really happening. How about the Body Snatchers episode where corpses had their body parts replaced with PVC pipes so they could be sold for a profit? In the Antron Singleton case, we cover a rapper who killed and ate pieces of a woman. There's always something new and interesting to listen to and a lot of twists and turns. So check out Exploring Evil everywhere you find Cryptique. Hey, my name is Ryan. And I'm pretty sure I'm Joe. And we are the hosts of Movie Hell, a podcast all about movies and pop culture. We're two buddies who talk about this stuff anyway and wanted to share our own madness with all of you. Yeah, we have these discussions anyway and rant and rave about movies, TV, and pop culture in general, so why not share it? The objective of Movie Howl is to bring you reviews and discussions of flops to avoid, new stuff to see, and hidden gems that might end up being your new favorite. Whether you're looking for that perfect movie for Friday night or wondering if anybody else found Mr. Nobody as unsettling as you did, I'm sure there's something for everyone to enjoy, and if not, let us know and we can always learn and improve. Ah, boy, do we have room to improve. You can listen to Movie Howl on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and pretty much anywhere else fine podcasts are curated. Alright, so some of these names are tough, but... Abe no Simi was the Japanese Merlin. However, unlike the European wizard, Simi's historical existence goes unchallenged. He served six different emperors as an Amiodo, or a yin-yang master. So that sounds uh, to me like a, a Japanese wizard, basically. Mm-hmm. He oversaw matters of divination, protecting the Japanese emperor with rituals to banish evil spirits and illnesses, which sounds like a great job until the king stays sick or you make the wrong prophecy and his army gets destroyed or something like that. That's, that's when it sucks to be the wizard. Yeah. Legends and folk tales ascribe him all sorts of supernatural powers. And there's even a famous Kabuki play called Kuzonu Oha. And it says he's inherited the magical power from his mother a white fox. So that's kind of a cool story. But Watanabe no Suna was said to cut off a demon's arm. He brought the cursed item to see me to seal it away with a spell. Trois frere. Well, that, that phrase is, well, I mean, that just means three brothers. Trois frere. The sorcerer Trois frere, um, 
of France is one of the earliest depictions of sorcery in human history. The figure presides over a series of Paleolithic cave paintings. It sits above the other cave paintings in an area only accessible by ascending a spiral corridor. He is a mix of man and animal with human limbs, a pronounced penis, and an animal body with antlers. Though scholarly debate surrounds his identity, the sorcerer is believed to be either a shaman or a god who held sway over the people inhabiting his area. Perhaps even more interesting than the sorcerer himself are those who painted him. The cave is theorized to be a place of gathering where rituals were performed to ensure a large bounty during hunts. The sorcerer, if he was indeed a god, would have been a god of sorcery, presiding over a coven of prehistoric wizards. If the sorcerer represented an actual man, however, he could be likened to a prehistoric Merlin. They're comparing everybody with Merlin. Yeah, I mean, when you're the gold standard, there were people Mm -hmm. on uh, YouTube videos about Merlin (laughs) making comments like that. Oh, he's the gold standard. Greatest wizard of all time. (laughs) Of all time. Yes. (laughs) I could hear Kanye saying it. And I actually found a couple of people who said they were convinced. I mean, these were just comments and posts and things like that, but saying they were convinced that there really was not just, there really was a Merlin, but there really was an immortal Merlin, you know, who could have served under four or five Kings and uh, just, just continues to live. And he's just chilling somewhere. Like he's still out there. Mm -hmm. Keanu Reeves. The next one we have is the black constable. Charleston, South Carolina has a long history of voodoo, and its deadliest voodoo sorcerer was named John Domingo. He was a peculiar-looking man, strong, unkempt, and often clad in an old Union Army coat. He wore a silver ring in the shape of a serpent he claimed could raise the dead. This supposed necromancer used his undead to enforce his own brand of law, earning him the nickname the Black Constable. It was said that sailors would buy wind from him to ensure a safe journey, and he could send storms their way if he was offended. He, citizens would actually seek him out to, you know, find where something was if it was stolen before they would go to police. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, I, in in talking about Merlin, there's still, from what I can tell, debate over whether or not the Book of Predictions that was put out by Jeffrey, that it was put out by him and attributed to Merlinus or the character Merlin. But it's not clear whether that was supposed to be something that he did for fun or something that was real. They said that some of the, now that they being, you know, in one case, a BBC documentary talking mm-hmm. about how some of the tragedies that were predicted had already happened by the time it came out. But the book is claiming, you know, this is like, these are prophecies from back in the day. So, but look, they got this stuff right. Yeah. They're saying that's, that's an easy way to give credit to something that's kind of bogus is to say, well, look, it predicted these things. You just, you know, say something that happened in kind of a, a vague way. Yeah. A way where you could just say like, well, look, this, this happened, you know, the, the son of a, whatever became this. And it's like, well, that could refer to this King or this leader. Does that make sense? Yeah, or yeah, or you write the book in 1500 and pretend like you wrote it in 1448 uh-huh. and predict a bunch of things in there and Right. Yeah, and, there you and go. And apparently, yeah, like you're saying in this uh this um character the black constable people consulted him. Well, they were saying that this was again fairly common back then you would have some kind of 
priest or equivalent or some kind of mystical person or magician who would be an advisor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people believed in this stuff a lot more back then than we do now. And that this book was used seriously for predictions. It was used by world leaders to, yeah. you know, just try to understand what was happening in the world and make decisions about anything that they were doing, you know, things related to trade or war. Mm-hmm. they would refer to this. They said basically until Nostradamus came around, like the real, like they were saying this was the Nostradamus of the day until the actual Nostradamus came on the scene. <laughs> so I find that really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. And I know there are parts of the world where, you know, fortune tellers are still used a lot more than they are here in the U S but yeah, it's just, I don't know. It, I think there's cool things and really scary things about living in a time like that. Mm -hmm. It'd be kind of neat to be able to believe in more Mm -hmm. in more than we believe in now. You know, there's probably a nugget of truth to a lot of what we talk about it, but to just think like, yeah, there are giants out there. Yeah. There are dragons out there. Oh, dragons under this castle fighting in like an underground pool. Why not? Sure. (laughs) Yeah. I, I buy that. Oh, Merlin can become a giant and move the stones that made up Stonehenge and create this other monument with them. And those are those are linked things and he can just do that. Yeah, cool. Why not? Mm-hmm. He's half incubus. Why wouldn't he be able to do that? He's a Cambian. Good point. Can't argue with the Cambian. <laughs> I thought I wouldn't suggest it. <laughs> All right. So. Our next contestant is Rabbi Judah Lo Ben Bezalel. He was a scholar and mystic known as the Maharal of Prague. Prague. <laughs> I get everything right, but Prague. You're trying. You're trying. <laughs> yeah, you're trying to pronounce it like an old English name. It's like no, no. This is this is a normal one. <laughs> oh man! All right. <laughs> So according to legend, he was often sought by the Holy Roman Emperor for both religious and secular knowledge. Uh, there was something really interesting about him. Um, he created a golem. Do you know what a golem is? I think I do. I think it's a uh, I think it's usually a creature brought to life that's made up of like dirt and stones. Correct. And then they write a spell on their chest and that turns them into a golem, which can usually be counted on to carry out grisly activities. In this case, it was supposed to be protecting the citizens, but there's a lot of stories of them kind of going out of control, going rogue and doing terrible Mm -hmm. things. So his golem too malfunctioned as they put it and went on a murderous rampage through the streets. And the rabbi put it down by changing the character written on its forehead. Yeah, that's a pretty, uh, pretty big malfunction. Yeah, no doubt. Whoops. Swear, we thought it was just a vaccine. You want me to to do the next one? (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. All right. So number six on our list is St. Cyprian. Legend says that St. Cyprian was a magician of Antioch in league with the devil. At the request of an amorous young man, he conjured a demon to arouse the maiden Justina so that the youth could seduce her. Justina recognized the attack on her sanctity and defeated the demon by making the sign of the cross. Very classical, this. 
His magic thwarted, Cyprian summoned the devil himself to tempt the maiden, but he was defeated in the same manner. Mm -hmm. Disgusted that Satan could be beaten by a mere maiden, Cyprian cast off his sorcery and converted to Christianity. In time, he became the bishop of Antioch and was martyred for his faith. The pair of Cyprian and Justina were declared saints and received their own feast day in the Catholic calendar. That's quite a, yeah, it's quite a turn. And what I find interesting about that is, so Cyprian was a full human, right? Just all human. Uh Okay. Because I always wondered if, you know, and I don't want to get into a long discussion about it, but if demons could be forgiven, like you would think that would be the biggest turn of events, you know, turning evil into good. Mm-hmm. Number five, the magician of Marblehead, a resident of Little Harbor, Marblehead in Massachusetts, Edward John Diamond was feared as an alternately benevolent and malevolent sorcerer. He was born sometime around the Salem witch trials, which we'll probably cover at some point. Mm. And his eccentric behavior was likely tolerated due to the stigma against witchcraft accusations following the hysteria. Diamond was said to go into trances. His eyes would roll back in his head and he would later come around feeling refreshed with knowledge of future and distant events. The townsfolk and even local police sought him out to locate stolen items. It's theorized that he could have just as easily located the items through deductive reasoning as it would be through wizardry and witchcraft and darker legends say that he was a necromancer who dug up graves for his diabolical arts if you know anybody who's a necromancer you need to end that relationship immediately (laughs) is that common do you run into that often pro tip yeah like you run into a friend who's like oh you're a you're a renaissance fair kid I don't, I don't know. This is going to work. Oh, yeah. yeah. You're a necromancer. Maybe we shouldn't hang out. <laughs> right. All right. Number four. You want to take this one? Sure. John of Nottingham. In 1324, the citizens of Coventry, England, were suffering under the oppressive rule of their local prior and two chamberlains of King Edward II, a father and son both named Hugh Dispenser. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Go ahead. In revenge, the citizens hired a local wizard to kill the prior, his accomplices, and the king they served. According to the story, the magician John of Nottingham and his assistant Robert Marshall brought wax and canvas to a ruined house. There they made images of the men they were to kill, including an extra one of a man named Richard DeLoe to test the spell's power. They wove spells for seven days and finally drove a leaden branch into the forehead of the image representing Lowe. The next morning, it was said that Lowe was found screaming and with total amnesia. He remained in the condition until the wizard removed the branch. Nottingham then inserted it into the image's heart. Lowe soon died. The deed was brought to the attention of local officials by Marshall, who was upset with the fee his master paid him. John of Nottingham was taken to trial on suspicion of witchcraft. After several adjournments, however, they found Marshall's tale without enough credibility for conviction, and John was released. It's pretty sad that Marshall was willing to do all the murder and everything like that, but then he got pissed off after he didn't feel like he got paid enough, and that's what sent him to the police, not the fact that they killed a man for no reason. Yeah, yeah, killed a guy just to test it. Right. I mean, that's like Dr. Evil level of villainy. 
All right. So number three, you guys are going to love this one. This man was one of the most influential European intellectuals of the 13th century, Michael Scott. <laughs> Unfortunately for him, history remembers him as not a scholar, but a sorcerer. Scott had a fascination with the occult and treated it with just as much enthusiasm as more orthodox subjects. He studied in Toledo, a Spanish city then under occupation by the Moors, translating many texts into Latin. In Scott's time, any European with Middle Eastern learning would have been respected and even feared. But Scott also took to dressing in an Arab gown, fueling the belief that he was indeed a sorcerer. His occult knowledge won him the post of personal astrologer to the Holy Roman Emperor. He was also tutor to the Pope, though he likely confined these lessons to more traditional subjects. During his tenure as the emperor's astrologist, he gained fame for successfully predicting the result of a war with the Lombard League. He also used his medical knowledge to cure the emperor of ailments. So I would be interested to know what some of that snake oil is. Yeah. After his death, other feats were ascribed to him, such as changing the course of the River Tweed, drawing rope from sand, and even cleaving the Eildon Hills of Scotland into three separate cones. So, again, that's kind of what you were saying, where, you know, they attribute things to them long after it's already happened. I guess he just kind of gained momentum, and they're like, oh yeah, he did this, and he did this, and... His reputation earned him a cameo in Dante's Inferno, where he is punished eternally in the level of hell reserved for wizards. So if you're thinking about being a wizard, just know there's a level of hell for you. Number two, Roger Bolingbroke. Bolingbroke was a 15th century priest connected to the Duke of Gloucester. He was accused of being involved in a plot to kill the king with black magic. He had an interest in astronomy and was said to have used the art to divine whether the Duke's wife would become the Queen of England. The king himself, Henry VI, was heirless. Had he died, the throne would have fallen to the Duke, making the Duchess Queen. Under torture, Bolingbroke confessed to plotting to kill the king with sympathetic magic using a wax image. He implicated the Duchess as an accomplice. She fled so as not to be tried by a religious court, probably saving her life but was nevertheless found guilty by a secular court and sentenced to life in confinement. A witch implicated in the plot, Marjorie Jordamain, was burned at the stake. Bolingbroke was hanged, drawn, and quartered. Historians now think that, like many men of learning, Bolingbroke probably did dabble in astrology. The plot to kill Henry VI, however, was likely conjured up by the Duke's political enemies. The Beaufort family, opponents of the popular duke, feared that he would ascend to the throne in the event of Henry VI's early demise. The duke himself toyed with astrology, but it would have been impossible to nail a black magic plot on him due to his immense popularity as a war hero. The duchess, though, was rather unpopular. Her family's connections to Bolingbroke further made her an easy target. The plot was ultimately successful, disgracing the duke enough that his ascension to the throne was impossible. And number one, you guys might remember this a little bit from the Black Mirror episode. Number one is Edward Kelly. Edward Kelly was the personal scryer of John Dee, the famed 16th century British occultist. He joined Dee's service soon after his former scryer, Barnabas Saul, removed himself from the post. 
Kelly used an obsidian mirror that he said received messages from the angels. Dee thought Kelly's scrying revealed fantastic supernatural knowledge, including the ancient language used by God and the angels, which is today known as Enochian. Dee and Kelly's relationship was long but troubled. Kelly was apparently only one of his names. He is believed to have studied at Oxford under the name Edward Talbot and later had his ears cropped as a punishment for forgery. Yeah, you heard that right. He had his ears cropped. Like a bulldog. That would be crazy. You know what I mean? It's like the scarlet letter. Like, oh, look at him. He's a forger. He's got messed up ears. <laughs> yeah. that's. I've never heard of anything like that. I hadn't either. I was shocked because it's not all that long ago. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things. But Dee's wife had a keen dislike for him. Her feelings are understandable since at one point, Kelly's angelic messages told Dee and Kelly to share all things, including wives. <laughs> the records are unclear. <laughs> I just like, oh man, that's so good. <clears throat> like, hey, I, the, the angel said that your wife i mean the angels man they said it (laughs) damn send her over here dog (laughs) (laughs) okay sorry isn't it funny how whenever there's cult leaders or anything like that it's always like yeah one of the main things i'm hearing from jesus is that you need to give me your wife yeah or you know whatever god they're talking about like it's all about the wives Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. though records are unclear it's believed the pact could have actually been consummated though d and kelly's relationship dissolved shortly after after parting from d kelly assumed the patronage of holy roman emperor rudolph ii's court during that time, he penned several alchemical texts. His alchemy met with little success, however, earning him little more than a term in prison where he failed to reveal his supposed secrets to his patron. Huh. Not very successful. No. Um, across time, it kind of seems like it's a really living on the edge kind of job. Yeah. If you're good, you get famous and... You get to go work for kings and emperors and stuff like that. But if you're faking the funk and you mess up, you're going to pay. Faking the funk is a great album name for something. That's right. I would be interested to know a couple things from our audience. Okay. One, if they believe in any of this. If they believe that these people were real or had real power, I mean, I guess we know these are real figures, but, you know, do you think Merlin was a real person? Do you think it was Merdin? Do you think it was something else? Do you think that the story is an amalgamation of a couple different people? And also, do you think this type of magic is possible? Do you have experiences with it? I would personally really like to know. Yeah, that would be great. I mean, share your stories with us for sure. Yeah. Give us a couple good ones and we'll read them on the air. Yeah, because it's one of these things where it kind of like what they were saying in one of the documentaries that I saw. It's like there are too many points at which a Merlin type character mm-hmm. interacted with real historical figures. Yeah. There's too many points where that intersects for it for it to be nothing. 
mm-hmm. for it to be purely just a fiction. You know, and it's one of these things where the idea of, of certain times of magic or golems, these kind of things have existed for so long. How could they if there was nothing to it? Yeah. I mean, that's not to say that they are absolutely real, but it's there's got to be something going on. You know, something that people believe, something that people have seen, some effect that these things have had. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah. I, I mean, like uh, dragons have always interested me in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of this thing of throughout history, every culture pretty much has had some kind of dragon. Yeah. Despite not having contact with each other that we know of. And being super, super different from different time periods from different places in the world. They all have some of these creatures and some of these things in common. You know, it's like, why? Well, maybe dinosaur bones. That could be. If you believe in dinosaurs. (laughs) Did I tell you I dated a girl who didn't? Well, you have a lot of uh, I knew a girl like that stories when we're talking about demons <laughs> and murder and possession and stuff like that. So I don't know. Hey, but yeah, I got on the edge, like you said. Yeah, yeah, that's one edge I don't want to live on. I think I would just end by, again, kind of repeating what one of these historians was saying, which is that. You know, the, the two things that we really don't understand are death and magic. Mm-hmm. And when you have these figures who claim to have the answers and can demonstrate these abilities, they get like a massive amount of attention. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think whether it was real knowledge or genuine magical ability, I do think there are real people behind most of these myths. Yeah. You know, whether it's, you know, in, in the case of uh, the one who was able to heal people or in cure ailments, mm-hmm. that may just be that they stumbled onto a cure for something. Yeah. Or it could be, you know, magic or prayer or plants or even kind of the, yeah, or even kind of the placebo effect that if you believe this person is this magical person who can heal me, mm-hmm. you know, if you believe something enough, sometimes it has an effect. Well, that about wraps this one up. Thanks to everyone for listening. We hope you had fun with tonight's show and let us know what you want us to cover at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. Please subscribe to the show so you won't miss a single episode and tell all your friends about Cryptique. Don't forget to check out Movie Hell and Exploring Evil and have a great night. Hey, what's up, Crypt Keepers? Are you enjoying the show? If you haven't already, I suggest taking my true crime podcast, Exploring Evil, for a test drive. Exploring Evil focuses on lesser-known serial killers, occult murders, and murders with a paranormal twist, so it should be right up your alley. 
The Magdalena Soli episode features a prostitute who convinced a Mexican village she was a goddess. She presented with psychosis, religious delusions, delusions of grandeur, sexual perversions, sadism, incest, fetishism, vampirism, and pedophilia. You don't want to miss that one. In the Indian Blood Farm, we cover a case where a man had an outbuilding he was keeping the downtrodden. He kept them weak by continuously draining blood to sell to the local hospitals who were running on short supply. But one man escaped and told the world what was really happening. How about the Body Snatchers episode where corpses had their body parts replaced with PVC pipes so they could be sold for a profit? In the Antron Singleton case, we cover a rapper who killed and ate pieces of a woman. There's always something new and interesting to listen to and a lot of twists and turns, so check out Exploring Evil everywhere you find Cryptique.